You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by Mitch Hilber, a global political risk and intelligence analyst and, of course, terrorism expert. Mitch has more than 20 years experience in providing high-end finished intelligence, bespoke consulting and advisory work for a very wide range of corporate, financial and government clients. He is a lecturer at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, uh, where he teaches on modern urban terrorism. He's also the executive director of the Community Security Initiative, a position which was created in February 2020. And uh, we will discuss that in more detail as we go through our discussion on today's podcast. Today, we plan on discussing Islamist extremism and also anti-Semitism and hate crimes against the Jewish community, which is a topic that we have not discussed previously on this podcast series. So uh, looking forward to a really good discussion. Mitch, you are uh, most welcome to the Counter-Extremism Project podcast series. Uh, Delighted to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. So to kick off with a discussion about the current Islamist extremism landscape, something that you have, uh, as I said at the outside, decades of experience with, you have worked as director of intelligence analysis with NYPD. So I think a good place to start is maybe to get your perspective on how you assess the threat of Islamist terror in the West generally at this point in time. Great. Well, you know, I think one of the trends that we've seen since 9-11 is that the Islamist threat seems to have these peak and sort of trough moments, but never completely disappearing from the scene. It comes back um, to sort of uh, bite us all. So, you know, I think we happen to be at one of those moments where with Al-Qaeda seemingly on the defensive, ISIS having lost its its physical caliphate, and at least in the last 12 months, probably the lowest number of attempted plots, both in the US and and Western Europe, one could make an argument that certainly at least in the West, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Islamist terrorism is at one of those trough moments. But that doesn't mean that some of the embers that could lead to a resurgence aren't there. And I think one of the key factors in this being one of a a low moment for Islamist terrorism is that some of the safe havens aren't nearly as robust as they they were in past times, whether it's in Afghanistan and Pakistan or in Syria and Iraq. Those areas are, are not as friendly to Westerners traveling there and back as they were over the last different periods during the last 20 years. That's really interesting. And so from your perspective, then, does that mean that the likelihood is that the risks may emerge closer to home then uh, as those safe havens are are less welcoming than they might have been in the past? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, you know, one of the the key phenomena that we identified really early on 
after 9-11, while I was at the NYPD, that in many of the plots, the actual operatives were Westerners. They were from the UK, they were from France, they were from the United States. They were, they were in the West, they radicalized, they traveled overseas to an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS training camp. And then they came back to visit their attacks on London and Paris, New York, other places in the West. But with those safe havens being less accessible, now we're more likely to see the phenomena where you have self-starters who don't travel overseas and who sort of combust with little warning, as we've seen in Vienna and in, in France, Paris, the last uh, probably 12 months or so. Yeah. And I suppose as we see more of these homegrown Western uh, perpetrators, what do you see as the drivers for the radicalization of those individuals? Is it a combination of factors? How is it happening? What's going on sort of behind the scenes that's actually driving these people to be recruited and um, carry out and perpetrate these attacks? I think it's a combination of factors. You know, part of it is the ideology in and of itself. Salafi jihadi ideology argues that there should be no opportunity for cooperation with non-Muslims and, you know, really takes uh, a very strict interpretation of the religion and also generally promotes violence toward non-believers. So there's an ideological element and that particular stream of ideology has become very prevalent in, on social media and just uh, over the course of lots of different types of media. Number two, I think is local grievances. You know, certainly in Europe, um, I've spent a lot of time across the continent and the phenomena of second and third generation diaspora communities not feeling like they're fully European, not feeling like they're fully British, fully French, fully German, fully Belgian, feeling sort of torn. They're, they're not quite Moroccan or Turkish or, or Pakistani, but they're not, you know, European. Well, they know that they're Muslim. And that sort of torn identity and perception that there's an inability to integrate into society is a ready-made grievance for people to, to cite. And we've certainly seen you know, the, some of the, the interpretations of secularism in France, where it's been a real flashpoint over the last 12 months. Um, and then there's always international affairs, you know, whether it's flashpoints in Yemen, or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is raging right now. Any of those types of flashpoints can be accelerants to the process, sort of triggering that spontaneous combustion. Mm -hmm. CEP has done a lot of work on identifying these drivers and also working on counter-narratives and mechanisms to challenge these ideologies. One of the things that you have been very involved in which I think is is really interesting, is examining the role of former extremists in both in prevention and de-radicalization. And I suppose one of the individuals that we're most familiar with, Jesse Morton, you were involved in apprehending him, I think, initially, and then also uh, developing you know, a relationship with him and working with him and actually seeing that transition from extremist to somebody who actually now goes out and tries to prevent the recruitment and radicalization of potential targets. Do you see that as being a really important part of the process or is that more of an exception to the rule? 
Well, I think it was a really unique situation. I mean, you really can't find one where a counterterrorism official was responsible, as you said, um, the arrest of a, a, a terrorist individual, and then later on, after that person gets out of prison, partners up with them. So, you know, with Jesse Morton, it really was the idea that, you know, as a counterterrorism official, we think we understand why people radicalize. But what about having the ability to interact with one of those people, a key person, in fact, and hear from them directly what led them to, to radicalize towards violence, the ideology, the grievances, what was in their mind as they did that, and now having heard how they've emerged from that milieu and now want to do good, I felt it was an opportunity to try and counter terrorism in a different way. Sure, there's intelligence, sure there are arrests, but what about if there was another way to prevent people from even going down the pathway towards violence that ends up at arrest? Maybe you could prevent, uh, maybe you could get people off that track. So it was really appealing for me to speak to Jesse, understand the choices that he made and why they made them and see if there weren't potential um, points where one could have an intervention with someone like him, but maybe 10 or 15 years younger and knock them off that track without having them to have to be arrested and sent to prison. Do you think there's um, generally an open-mindedness about that type of engagement with former extremists, even former terrorists, to find ways to work sort of hand in hand to achieve de-radicalization? Is that something that you think law enforcement agencies generally are open to, or is it something that might be viewed a little bit with suspicion still? Well, I think it's been an evolutionary process. I mean, frankly, I was first exposed to the concept of it when the Quilliam Group in the UK, led by uh, Ed Hussein and Majid Nawaz and others, you know, showed how individuals who had been Islamists could turn around and then really be a force for good with their unique ability to A, know the ideology inside and out, and number two, be able to argue against it articulately in the local vernacular, English in their case, and the idea that that was another way to counter terrorism. And I thought that was a phenomenal idea and wondered when we could try it in the US. The problem was in the US, we really didn't have terrorists who were A, out of jail, and or B, so articulate and knowledgeable who could do that. We could argue against it using the words um, that were twisted one way, but use it to push someone another pathway. So Jesse Morton was really unique in that perspective. And I think now in the U.S., there's been an understanding that really you can't arrest your way out of this problem. And that if you could find former violent extremists, not only for jihadist terrorism, but for other types of terrorism, frankly, building on some of the interesting work done in Germany and some of the Nordic countries, maybe those people could help you dissuade others from going down that pathway. So I think it's now an evolution. People are more inclined, open-minded to doing that. Even the Department of Justice in the US has experimented with some pilot programs. So we've come a long way since 9-11 on this issue. On the other side of the coin, if you like, I mean, many of the foreign terrorist fighters and indeed domestic terrorists who have been arrested, especially in Europe in the past several years, many of them are due for release. And 
Likewise, you know, many of uh, foreign fighters are still on the ground in prison camps in Syria and may and are being released at the same time. So, I mean, in terms of that particular threat, how do you see that evolving? And are there particular strategies that can be deployed by the international community now to deal with those individuals, um, most of whom have not been de-radicalized, many of whom are very dangerous individuals? How should they be handled? Well, you know, you've hit on sort of one of the, the key points of, you know, what to do with formerly incarcerated terrorists, because one of the reasons why everyone was very wary of, of, of going down this road was for fear that you might think that someone has said they've changed their ways, but in effect, you know, they're sort of uh, misleading you. And that might end, you know, to terrible violence, as unfortunately we've seen in a couple of cases in the UK. And, you know, really the ability to know what's in someone's mind and heart, sort of an x-ray for, for someone's soul, it doesn't exist. So we're using very crude, intuitive sense as to someone, have they really changed their ways? So this issue of what to do with these foreign fighters who have been captured, the Westerners captured and are now sitting in you know, some type of incarceration in Syria and Iraq is really complicated. I firmly believe that these people should be brought back to their country of origin and that they should be put on trial in some way, shape or form. And then you know, once they've served their time, which includes some type of opportunity for rehabilitation, you know, that, that's a way forward. I don't think leaving them you know, in a prison run by the Syrian uh, militia, you know, in the desert is the way to go because it's, it's likely at some point these people will get out. So we need to bring them back. They need to face trial. Um, it is difficult to sort of, you know, get the evidence in order to do that, but that's an important piece. I don't think this idea of taking away people's passport is good because if they don't have a passport, they don't have a nationality, they're more likely to adopt the nationality of the Islamic Caliphate or some other jihadist group. So it, it's not easy answers, but that's certainly from my perspective, I think the direction this should go. Mm -hmm. On a slightly maybe higher level, you're on the record uh, previously as uh, being somewhat critical of the, the last US administration's approach to claiming victory over ISIS and, and I suppose the, the absence of a long-term strategy for dealing with the U.S. relationships in the Middle East. And I'm wondering whether your thinking has evolved on that. Have you seen any change in the new administration? Or is there any cause for hope from your point of view? And I, I suppose I'm asking that also with the backdrop of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict ongoing at this point in time. Well, you know, I think you know, the administration was quick to claim sort of victory over ISIS and the caliphate, and certainly the physical caliphate was pretty much vanquished by a combination of you know, U.S. and allied forces, as well as partners on the ground, like the Kurdish militias and others. So, you know, no doubt that was a certain positive, and I think is, there's been a direct relationship between the lack of plotting in the West by ISIS since that happened. So, you know, that actually went, went quite well. The question is, you know, what do you do when in a vacuum? You know, Iraqi uh, security forces certainly need to step into those areas and gain control of them so that ISIS can't make a comeback. I think that's, you know, going back to one of our earlier discussions, 
in the idea that this threat rises and falls, but doesn't disappear. And when there are safe havens, that's likely to happen. So, you know, I think that that's one of the things that the Biden administration should spend time on is really trying to help Iraq gain control over there's some of those ungoverned areas, you know, in the, the Western deserts. And, you know, certainly Syria uh, and all of the manifestations of fighting that have gone on there, whether it, when it was a hub for the Islamic State and Qaeda spinoff, those have been problems you know, related to Syria. You know, right now we're in a situation where tensions are tremendously high. You know, we've had 10 days of violence between Israel and Hamas, terrorist organization launching rockets against a civilian population over grievances that are longstanding. And you've seen that tensions in the Middle East never stay there. They always seem there's leakage. There's leakage into Western Europe. There's leakage into the U.S. And, you know, that's certainly right now in New York, I can tell you that communities are on high alert. Could there be violence in one direction or another? We've certainly seen a lot of protest activity in London, in Berlin, in Brussels, you know, in New York. And could some of that protest violence turn to violent attacks? Terrorism, it's possible. So it's certainly a sort of a, a powder keg that has the potential to blow up. Absolutely. I think you've put it really well in terms of the potential risk of leakage and spillover. None of these uh, conflicts in the Middle East occur in isolation. They have a really significant impact. And maybe that's a good segue into our discussion, as I outlined at the start, we wanted to examine your work, which is also extensive on anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic violence, which we have seen in both the US and Europe. And I think you've identified already some of the potential for spillover violence, for protest demonstrations, which can potentially lead to uh, more nefarious activity. Perhaps it would be useful if you could give us some sense from your work how big is the threat to Jewish communities in the West at the moment? Uh, is this a problem that's growing, escalating? And are you seeing effective strategies to, to combat it from a policy perspective? Sure, it's a really interesting question. And in the fall of 2017, um, I got involved in a project led by Ronald Lauder, the president of the World Jewish Congress, to look at the threat of violence against Jewish communities in Western Europe. So that involved working with the former police commissioner of, of New York City, Ray Kelly, and David Cohen, the former deputy commissioner for intelligence, to travel to a dozen countries in Europe and to try and identify what was the nature of the threat, where was it coming from, what communities, what political ideologies were driving it, and then really figure out what was the magnitude against Jewish populations in different countries in Europe, ranging from the UK, France, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Poland, Denmark, Ukraine, Sweden. And those were, you know, many of the countries that we went to. And it's really different in every single country. You really couldn't look, you know, at the EU plus and say it, it's similar all throughout. You know, and that range from what communities is the threat coming from? You know, certainly in France and in Belgium, the threats to the Jewish community seem to primarily come from the Islamist 
um, ideological part of the spectrum from you know the same second and third generation diaspora who had an affinity to go fight over in Iraq and Syria was the same exact demographic that were similarly targeting and involved in terrorist attacks against Jewish locations in Brussels and Paris and other locations. In the UK, it was a little bit of a mix in the sense that you had a rising right-wing extremist group, almost neo-Nazi, but still an Islamist element. You move over to Germany, very different than Germany, where, you know, for the most part, anti-Semitism had historically come from the right and revanchist neo-Nazi elements. Um, but now, you know, with an influx of refugees from Syria and Iraq who grew up on anti-Zionist propaganda, were amenable to that. And, you know, that was just sort of some of the bigger countries, you know, in Europe and in the nature of the threat. You know, we tried to figure out which countries we thought where the threat was greatest. And, you know, certainly France was one that we were most concerned about and a combination of factors there. Number one, just demographically, having the largest Jewish population in Europe, 450 to 500,000, you know, people of, of Jewish uh, you know, religious uh, observance, and also having the highest Muslim population, potentially, you know, 10 to 12 percent of French population. And obviously only a percentage of that is Islamist and extremist, even a small fraction of it. But, you know, when you're dealing with a large denominator, even a, a small percentage, you know, could be deadly. And the question is, you know, what were governmental authorities doing? I mean, I think one of the good news stories was that, you know, anywhere you went across the continent, European governments were aware of it. The EU Commission was aware of it. And the question was, well, how do you combat this? Does it require police and gendarmerie in front of every Jewish location, synagogue, school, community center? You know, were there programs in place to try and foster uh, inter-community, interfaith relations, and different spots in the continent working this differently. Denmark, obviously, you know, all the numbers are smaller. It seemed to be a pretty safe place for Jewish communities. And then you also had in certain countries where there was the development of an autonomous Jewish organization. Volunteers, unarmed, but sort of trying to provide an extra layer of protection between the police and potential assailants, you know, standing guard in front of their synagogue or school um, as an extra set of eyes and ears. And different countries had different groups with different levels of capability. So, you know, quite varied tapestry across the continent. But unfortunately, when you looked at the numbers, whether it was Germany, France, UK, Belgium, Austria, all the numbers seem to indicate that anti-Semitic incidents and crimes were on the rise. Um, when you look at the two distinct cohorts where anti-Semitic sentiment is prevalent, Islamist groups and far-right groups, is there much of an intersection now between those groups? Because traditionally, you know, they would not be aligned on, on too many issues. Did you come across any evidence of that where there is actually, I don't know, a sharing of information or maybe a sharing of platforms, um, for example? I think maybe, you know, there's been a sharing um, of, uh, of methodologies, you know, of technique to radicalize, where I think a lot of the things that we saw the Islamic State pioneered social media, you know, being providing at one very surface level of social media, propaganda, visual images 
but also an opportunity to go direct, direct message, or to a different platform to have more private conversations. I think that's been sort of a tradecraft element that has migrated from the Islamist side of the spectrum to right-wing extremist elements as well, where they too see that at some level you need to broadcast your message to the masses, but then you want to be able to recruit and cherry pick those people to join your organization and simultaneously have a way to vet them. And, you know, by going privately to a different platform away from what law enforcement can penetrate, maybe an encrypted platform, and then via direct message on Telegram and others, that, that's provided the mechanism for doing that. Yeah, and I mean, I think we have seen in relation to both the terrorist plots and the perpetrated terrorist attacks in the West in you know the last 10 years or so, almost all have been either coordinated through online platforms, social media platforms, messaging platforms, or the perpetrators have been recruited in that way. So that definitely seems to be a common trend through these organizations, which is interesting. How would you assess the efforts of technology companies that own these platforms and policymakers in trying to minimize the exploitation of these platforms for nefarious purposes, whether it's for the spread of anti-Semitic propaganda or indeed Islamist propaganda and recruitment? You know, I think the two words I would use are disappointing, bordering on negligent, you know, the idea that some of the posts and ideology and hate that have been broadcast on these platforms, and, you know, you've seen an evolution in how the social media companies have dealt with it. They're finally now making a reckoning of it. But, you know, how many lives have been lost that could have prevented? How many attacks that would have been thwarted if these individuals were potentially deplatformed at an earlier process? Uh, earlier stage, I should say. So, you know, there was very much the position that Facebook, maybe most prominent among all, took. And, um, you know, I remember meeting with the former French Minister of Interior a couple of years ago, and he said, listen, I, I went out to Silicon Valley, and I said, you know, the things you have on your platform, they're triggering violence here in France. And the response from Facebook, well, look, you know, First Amendment in the U.S., and it was really an absolutist point of view with no nuance. And by the way, you know, there are terms of service agreements that regulate and give the social media companies the ability to regulate and serve as minders over what they allow on their platforms. And, you know, they were negligent. They really didn't want to do that. Why? Well, you know, on one hand, it was a cost center. You don't make money by hiring people to monitor what's being said on your platform. And number two, one of the appealing elements of being a platform and your advertising to the world was, hey, we're wide open. You can say anything. And, you know, we saw that go to an extreme effect, you know, with Parler in the United States, you know, uh, during the time period in and around the insurrection on January 6th, to the point where finally you had, you know, the Apple's iTunes store literally had to take that social media platform down and others um, because it had become such a cesspool for extremism and hate. I mean, they had done such a poor job that is a parlor in regulating it, that actually they had to be deplatformed in its entirety. Yeah, it's really interesting to see 
how this is such a common problem to really the whole gambit of extremist ideologies and organizations and networks. We might discuss the insurrection on Capitol Hill in in a couple of minutes, but before we do, I mean, obviously your research and analysis of the security risk to the Jewish community in Europe and the prevalence of anti-Semitism and the ideologies behind it and so on has informed, I would imagine, your view and, and I guess much of your work in the Jewish Community Relations Council in New York. And I think that's a really interesting initiative, which has been funded I think with the objective of bolstering security for the greater New York region's Jewish community. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about what you've been doing there. I know it's a relatively new initiative and one that perhaps could become a model for other regions and other cities and other parts of the world. Sure. Well, you know, I joked that I earned my PhD in Jewish security as I traveled Europe for Mr. Lauder over those two years, you know, traveling to all the European countries and learning about the threat and, and also the way that those different communities were trying to combat the threat. And ironically, I was in Kiev when the Tree of Life terrorist massacre happened in Pittsburgh at the synagogue. And, you know, here to four in the U.S., there had been some violence against Jews, but it had really been more assault and nothing very rarely deadly. There you had 11 people shot dead in their house of worship for no other reason than they were were Jews. And then unfortunately, six months later in San Diego, a town called Poway, yet again, uh, an individual radicalized by right-wing neo-Nazi ideology came in and shot a parishioner at, at a synagogue there, and it could have even been more deadly. So there you had two attacks in the US, 12 Jews dead, and that was really a shock. That was a 9-11 moment for the Jewish communities in the United States. And in New York, there's um, a few key Jewish organizations. As you mentioned, the Jewish Community Relations Council and the Jewish Federation of New York called the UJA. And they wanted to create a security umbrella organization to try and protect what is the largest population of Jews outside the state of Israel, approximately 1.5 million people in eight counties and probably a thousand institutions. So. I had been involved in advising those organizations on what they might do, and uh, was in fact involved with the hiring process on the committee and decided to throw my hat in the ring at a certain early point during that uh, process. And with the idea, frankly, learning from some of the best practices that I saw in Europe, seeing what the Community Security Trust had done in the UK, seeing what the SPCJ had done in France, communal security organizations who have professionals, who partner with law enforcement, who try and be that sort of connective tissue between the community, between the schools, the houses of worship, community centers, police and elected officials to try and knit together sort of an iron dome, if you will, you know, protecting those communities from violence. And has that involved mobilization of individual members of the Jewish community then? I mean, has there been a real buy into this in, in your experience? Uh, there has. You know, other cities in the U.S. were, were doing this um, for a number of years. Los Angeles, you know, for maybe eight or ten years already. Uh, Cleveland, Ohio had a program like this. So New York, ironically, was late to the game here. But New York and the population here has embraced it. You know, schools and synagogues and community centers are glad to have um, sort of a, a team of advisors 
who they could call upon to understand how to protect the physical security of their location, how to set up an emergency communications network, best practices on evacuation and sheltering in place, all these types of different things that unfortunately have become commonplace you know, as we sort of enter this era of active shooters where people need to know how to safeguard themselves. So this has been a pretty active program. We're about 15 months into it. I have a team of five regional security managers. Each one is responsible for a county or two in the greater New York City area. And then we even have an intelligence analyst who's looking at threats in the deep in the dark web, like we would have done at NYPD to try and find someone like the Robert Bowers, the attacker in Pittsburgh, before they went active, before they attempted to attack an institution, pick them up and maybe we can refer them to law enforcement. It sounds like a very smart approach. Unfortunate that it's necessary, obviously, but these are the times we live in. Uh, just a connected question in light of the pandemic and, you know, the prevalence of conspiracy theories and, you know, a lot of this sort of narratives circulating, particularly again on the internet and through social media platforms, has that emerged as a factor? Is that something that you have seen as triggering or contributing to anti-Semitic thought or activity in your work? Unfortunately, it has. You know, there are a variety of different organizations like the Anti-Defamation League in the U.S. and others who have been tracking, people have been saying about COVID online. One of the issues that we've been dealing with in the U.S., I think really worldwide, has been how has COVID affected conspiracy theories, and in particular, how that's affected the, the Jewish community. And unfortunately, as people have looked to figure out a scapegoat for you know, who's responsible for COVID, you know, the Jewish community has, has received uh, an unwarranted amount of, of attention. And we've seen you know, different narratives online hearkening back to the worst visuals of Nazi Germany, where number one, Jews are the virus itself. Number two, Jews are some type of subhuman species spreading the virus to Jews are profiteering off of the virus. And there's been a lot of imagery out there, you know, that, that have sort of tried to emphasize these trends. And although we haven't seen a direct physical attack because of that imagery, you know, one of the concerns has been, you know, as people get out of lockdown, they have grievances, economically they've been harmed, you know, maybe they've lost loved ones and they're looking for scapegoats that Jews could figure prominently as scapegoats. Now here in the United States, we've seen a real rise in anti-Asian hate, you know, with the idea being that somehow or another Asian Americans have anything to do with, with COVID, with its origination in China. And, uh, you know, our group, we've had interfaith outreach where we've tried to partner with Asian American groups in the New York area to try and share with them our best practices in security because we are very sympathetic to what they're facing. You know, no group has a monopoly on sort of hate being directed at them. So, yeah, so I think we're still dealing with the after effect of COVID from a social media and conspiracy view, and we'll see how this plays out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And the overlap with other, other communities, uh, minority groups uh, who have been targeted um, and are being targeted in, in the wake of COVID is an unfortunate reality, I think, 
we mentioned earlier, and I just wanted to touch on it briefly before we conclude, you have also uh, recently another one of the strings to your bow. You have been involved in some research into the attack on the Capitol uh, in January. And I think it'd be very interesting if you could share some of your findings and insights from that um, for our listeners today. Sure. It's a very timely question because the report literally just came out yesterday. And the Atlantic Council, a think tank in the U.S., was very interested in looking at the January 6th insurrection from a variety of different vantage points. One of those vantage points was, was there an intelligence failure? And if so, what did that exactly mean? And then what might be some policy prescriptions going forward. So this has been a project I've been working on for about the last four months. And in many ways, just like after 9-11, there was an effort to review the intelligence community and its structure in the U.S. and then a subsequent restructuring of it to face the new threat. I think in January, the January 6th insurrection, you know, requires a similar type of response. Now, the nature of my investigation looked at, okay, what, you know, when you look at intelligence, it really has three components. Number one, you have to collect the intelligence or collecting the dots. Number two, you've got to connect the dots, which is what analysts do. And number three, once you've got that picture, you know what the connected dots look like. You then have to warn someone and say, hey, this is what the picture looks like as best as I can tell. And we need to take some type of actions to prevent it. Right, so that that's what an intelligence agency, if it's functioning, should do. So I looked at the Department of Homeland Security, their intelligence and analysis unit. I looked at the FBI. I looked at the Capitol Police and looked at them both in advance of January sixth, but also over the last four years and how each one of them have done against domestic violent extremists. You know, one of the things I found was that all of the organizations were able to collect the dots. So it wasn't a complete intelligence failure. It's not as if they weren't able to gather the information, but depending on the agency, Department of Homeland Security and FBI in particular, they failed to analyze the dots. And it's unclear, you know, different reasons for each agency, why they were not able to put the picture together. And we understand that they had enough dots to connect them, to to really get a picture of what was coming on January 6th. And what they certainly didn't do is they certainly didn't warn. They didn't warn the upper echelons of the U.S. federal government that there was a high likelihood of violence on January 6th, and it could be directed at the Capitol itself and the U.S. Congress itself. So, you know, there were these failures at a variety of different levels in the intelligence community and on the domestic side of the ledger. So some of the proposals that I wanted to, you know, have the U.S. government look at is creating a new analytic unit that sits within the National Counterterrorism Center and looks at domestic violent extremism. To date, the National Counterterrorism Center has almost explicitly been focused on the overseas threat. So this would be an expansion of their mandate. I also want to incorporate social media analysis into the Department of Homeland Security's intelligence analysis unit, looking at what people are posting, tracking it, and really trying to connect, you know, from what people say to what might be potential actions. 
And, you know, my belief is that if someone posts something online, you're not really, you know, crossing into any civil rights, civil liberties issues. It's as if they announce it in the public square. And then one of the other um, suggestions is that, you know, in the CIA, they used to have someone called a warnings officer. So if someone was picking up some type of alarming trend of events in Mozambique or North Korea or in uh, Hungary, they would be able to warn the upper echelon of the CIA that, hey, there's something you need to pay attention to. And in the director of National Intelligence Office, there is not someone who's the quote unquote warnings officer. So I believe there should be someone who's got that mission explicitly so they would be clearly the one to warn if there is something uh, metastasizing, if there's something bubbling up that needs immediate attention, like the January 6th insurrection or frankly, some other type of threat. And that's really some of the key points of the report that are, are in it. Mm, well, that's very much hot off the presses. And thank you for that really clear and succinct summary, including the recommendations. It sounds to me so logical. And it really is a case, I guess, of updating practices within government intelligence to keep abreast of the developments that are occurring, you know, in terms of how extremist groups and individuals organize themselves. So so what you're proposing, I think, is very logical. And I also think is most likely very applicable in pretty much any country across the globe. But certainly it's it's good and would be good to see the US administration leading on this. So Mitch, uh, I want to thank you for sharing your insights uh, in fairness across a, a fairly vast array of topics today from Islamist extremism to anti-Semitism and um, specifically your recent report on the attack of the Capitol and the recommendations arising from that. And it's been really interesting speaking to you. No doubt we will be talking about all of these topics long into the future, and I look forward to discussing them with you again. But for today, thank you so much for sharing your insights and for really setting out your thoughts and your expertise so clearly for our listeners. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about fighting terror and the counter-extremism project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. Thank <laughs> you.